goodness, I hope that your hearts uh, are full and prepared after we just spent this time singing to the Lord. Thank you, uh, Sung Worship Team. Thank you, Kenny. That was beautiful. Um, if you were paying attention, we, we framed our time of sung worship around Psalm 46. And Psalm 46 is what Martin Luther based the incredible hymn, A Mighty Fortress, uh, that we sang at the beginning of our service on. And, and we know, Scripture testifies over and over again that, that God is our mighty fortress. And we can hide in him. Uh, he is strong. Uh, he is mighty. He is worth hiding in. He is inclined to help us. And yet, as, as we think about that, it, it's easy to doubt that God is the mighty fortress that he says that he is. It doesn't always feel like God is a mighty fortress, does he? Um, the past several years, I think, have provided all of us enough stuff to uh, no doubt at times feel like God is something less than a mighty fortress, that God does not actually care to provide us help uh, or peace or comfort. Th those questions maybe come to mind, can God provide help? And will God provide help? You know, I, I know enough of you and I know enough about what's going on in some of your lives as I look out and see your faces to know that, that you've experienced trials, very real trials, things that are hard and, and things that no doubt will get into our hearts and affect our hearts and our minds in such a way where we're left with questions. And we wonder, does God care? Is he there? Is he able to do anything? Will he do anything? Those are really the questions that are at the heart of our passage that we're going to be considering this morning. Is God able and is he willing? Is God able and is he willing? Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a passage where we will see that yes, God is able emphatically so. He is able to do something about the circumstances in our lives. He's able to do something about those big uh, overarching things that are happening in our world, that are happening to us as individuals, that are happening to us as a church. And God is willing to help us. He's inclined towards helping us, though it may not always seem to be the case. And so from Luke 8, we're going to see two things in our time in the Word this morning. Two main points. Jesus is the Lord of the wind and the waves. Jesus is the Lord of the wind and the waves. And then second, Jesus is forming his followers. Jesus is forming his followers. And so if you have your Bibles open, Luke 8, we're going to read verses 22 through 25. So follow along with me as I read out loud. Verse 22, one day he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. 
And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and in danger. And they went and they woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you would gather us together this morning, this particular people, so that we could worship you, so that we could sit under your word and collectively be formed into the image of Jesus and work to present one another mature in Christ. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We want to begin by seeing this first point. Jesus is the Lord of the wind and the waves. And so we begin with the question of identity. Who is Jesus? And who does this passage tell us that Jesus is? The central question of this passage is about Jesus. Who Jesus is and not about the disciples and their faith or lack thereof. We want to get the emphasis right here. This isn't a passage about Jesus' disciples. This is a passage about Jesus. It's revealing something about Jesus first and foremost. And so the story begins with Jesus and his disciples getting into a boat. Jesus directs his disciples into this boat, into the lake, so that they may cross to the other side. And so the the boat that they get into probably wasn't a particularly large boat. It was most likely just a regular old fishing boat, probably about 20 to 25 feet long, simple, open air with some benches inside of it so that people could simply go out in the water and get to where they are going. Nothing special about it. And uh, Luke doesn't make it quite as clear as, uh, as Mark does, for instance, but, but Mark will connect this story to Jesus' teaching that occurred right before it. So that happens in the book of Luke 2, but, but Mark actually says that following Jesus' teaching, his, his teaching in parables, his teaching about the kingdom, is explaining these parables, then he gets in the boat and they go out across the lake. And so what we glean from that is, is Jesus is tired. He's exhausted. He just poured himself out for the sake of others. And now he gets out into the middle of the lake and he falls asleep. And so Jesus and his disciples set out and our text tells us that a windstorm came down upon the lake. Literally, the text is saying that a gale force wind came upon them. And next thing they knew, the disciples found themselves in the midst of a very real, very scary storm. And so um, this is the Sea of Galilee. And it's probably helpful to know something about topography here with the Sea of Galilee to understand exactly what's happening. Sea of Galilee is depressed. It's about 700 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded by hills on both sides. One side, there's actually a mountain range a little bit further out. And the way that it works with the Sea of Galilee is this cool air will come down from this mountain range and then it will come and it will go down this steep embankment 
and it will rush cool air towards the warm air sitting on top of the water. And then those things collide. And what happens? Volatility happens. Uh, Cool air collides with the warm air and instant violent storms come to be. Uh, and, and so this is a known thing that would happen in this region on the Sea of Galilee. But, but this storm seemed to be particularly intense. It wasn't any old regular Sea of Galilee sort of storm. Matthew's gospel uses the same word used to describe a, an earthquake to describe this storm. It's a, it's a violent storm. You have to remember that the disciples were accustomed to being on the water. Several of them, in fact, were professional fishermen. They're used to dealing with stormy seas. They've been on this lake when these sort of storms would kick up, but they found themselves terrified. That speaks to something of the violence and the uniqueness of this storm. Our passage says that the boat was filling with water. Matthew says the boat was being swamped with water. And so in other words, the disciples were in real danger. This isn't make-believe sort of stuff. This was a dire situation, a dangerous situation. Water was literally at their ankles as the storm was raging. Now for the disciples, this situation was enough to terrify them. I think any of us would be terrified in this situation. Uh, Water is scary. My sons right now are waking up to the reality that water is scary. They don't want to go on boats because they're afraid of whales. They realize there's something scary about the water, and we want to have a safe distance from that thing out there. So, So this is a scary situation, but beyond the situation itself... There is a type of symbolism here that we shouldn't miss. Yes, the situation is scary, but the situation points to something bigger than the disciples being in danger. The situation points to the idea of chaos. Chaos. In ancient Near East, water was often associated with chaos. It's that uncontrolled thing. It's that untamed thing. It's that unbelievably powerful thing that does what it wants. And so if we were to survey the the Psalms and the Proverbs and the prophets, we'd see that the scripture is not unaware of this association with water. No doubt the, the disciples are not unaware of this association with water. The Old Testament is full of passages of Scripture that talk about the water and describe the water as something that uh, only God can control, that only God is able to do something about. And in fact, they'll sometimes describe waters as that thing that God uses to to, um, bring about judgment upon people with. And so that's kind of the idea that we even see in something like Psalm 46. You know, the wind or the, the, the earth itself may give way and it falls into the heart of the sea that roars and that foams. And so it's something that only God is able to stand up over and against. And so, and so that brings us to our passage. The, the disciples are in real danger. They are assailed by a thing that is inherently dangerous and scary and something that only God 
can do something about. And so they cry out to Jesus in utter terror. Help us, master, master, we're dying. Jesus hears their cry. He wakes up. He rebukes the wind and the waves. Mark says that he uses three words, peace, be still. Peace, be still. And in three words, there's perfect calm. An utter calm, a great calm. Jesus doesn't use some sort of incantation. He doesn't draw upon the strength of the spirit world. He doesn't use a wand. He doesn't use a staff and hit it against the ground. He doesn't say, you shall not pass. No, Jesus says, peace, be still. Peace be still. Three words. Three words and physics stops. Three words and the storm ceases. And the disciples, they look around and they see these perfectly peaceful conditions. There's no chop in the water. There's no wind that continues to blow. The clouds have have dissipated. That The sun is shining. And they see something that leaves them amazed, perplexed. And they say, who then is this? Who can command the winds and the waves and they obey him? And what I think we're seeing is they're beginning to understand, hey, the the Old Testament says that there's only one who can do something about the winds and the waves. And so what does that say about Jesus? Several months back, we had a scary thing happen at our house. Um, we had a neighbor uh, come and knock on our door and say, hey, can you see the fire from your back patio? And I said, fire? <laughs> and, uh, and so we went to our back patio, and sure enough, a few hundred yards away up on top of a hill, you could see a small fire burning on the top of the hill. You could see the flames and smoke. And it was kind of cool. And, uh, and so... We saw this fire, called the boys out, said, hey, look at this fire. Isn't that a great thing? And, and we watch it. And then all of a sudden I start to notice that fire seems to be getting a little bigger. And, and it seems to be getting a little stronger. There's more smoke coming out. And then next thing I know, it's a full-on, like full-fledged fire. And then I start to notice it's moving down that hill. And that fire is beginning to eat up the grass and the brush and the bushes and the trees. And it is getting bigger and bigger. And it is moving down that hill. And I thought, oh, no. And and so I call out to Raylan, you know, grab all of our documents, pack our bags just in case. And, And so she goes inside. The kids go inside. And I just stay there watching this fire. And it's building in intensity. And it's coming down the hill. There's some houses over here. And it's, and it's kind of moving in our general direction. And I felt completely helpless. I didn't know what to do. I felt like I had to do something. So I got a little water hose. And I started watering our grass. Like that'll, that'll take care of the problem. I sprayed some up on the roof. And, and, and I just sat there thinking, what in the world do I do? I can't do anything about this. It's, it's a problem that's too big for me. Fortunately, the fire department was incredible. 
And within uh, a few minutes, dozens and dozens of firefighters were on the scene. They're spraying water. Eventually, uh, five helicopters came, a few planes came, and they were dumping water and fire retardant on it. And it was actually an incredible sight that was fun to, to have my boys watch. We had this incredible view of this whole thing. And in about an hour or so, hour and a half, the fire was gone. Praise the Lord. Now, I imagine that I probably felt some small measure of what the disciples felt in that boat. My house wasn't literally on fire as the disciples' boat was literally taking on water. So there are differences, but I felt helpless. And I felt hopeless. I couldn't do anything about the fire on the hillside. The disciples couldn't do anything about the raging storm that was tossing them every which way. They possessed zero authority over the winds and the waves, just as I possessed zero authority over the fire on the hillside. But you see, that's where Jesus and I are different. That's where Jesus and the disciples are different. Jesus uttered three words, and there was perfect calm. There wasn't a smoldering hillside left over. There wasn't an hour-long fight with a fire. There wasn't plumes of smoke left behind. No, there was perfect calm. Jesus spoke, and his authority was put on display. He spoke and, and nature bended towards his will, obeyed his demand. Now, how could Jesus do this? Because he is the Lord of the wind and the waves. In Luke, we're learning about Jesus and we're seeing his identity and his character being revealed bit by bit. We're beginning to see a little bit more of who Jesus is. Most of us, maybe not all of us, most of us know where the story is going. We, we, we know what is going to be ultimately revealed about Jesus, but his disciples are learning this in real time. Jesus is no mere Messiah-like figure. He's not merely coming to deliver Israel from Roman oppression and occupation. No, Jesus is the one who heals He's the one who resurrects. He's the one who teaches and teaches with authority. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, as we've learned. And now we're seeing that he is the Lord of the winds and the waves. He is the one who stills that which cannot be stilled. In the weeks to come, we're going to continue to see his authority be put on display. We're going to continue to learn about who he is to the point, to the climactic point, where we are going to see Jesus profess to be the Christ of God. Now, Grace, you know, in light of the, the prayer of confession we prayed earlier, I confess to you that I often see Jesus as something less than the Lord of the wind and the waves. My, my attitudes, my actions, my trust or lack thereof indicate that I see Jesus as something less than this. I often see him as a better version of me, a really, really, really good version of me. And so I respond to him as a better version of me. And that's my fear for us. I think we can be lulled to sleep by all this stuff that is around us but by the things that we're inundated with on a day-by-day -day basis 
And we see Jesus as something less than what he really is, and so we live accordingly. And we live passive lives. We live lives where we we fail to recognize the great power and might that Jesus possesses and that he wants to utilize through his people. This past week, tornadoes ripped through my hometown. Uh, It's pretty normal. I live, or I grew up in an area called Tornado Alley. And so tornadoes come through fairly often. Well, one tornado went pretty close to my mom's house. And she was able to experience the might of a tornado. She heard the tornado. Do you know what sound a tornado makes? What sound is associated with the tornado? It sounds like a train. It sounds like a train is literally going over your house. My mom heard that sound. The house shook. Debris thrown everywhere. Trees snap. Limbs break off and they're thrown at cars and at houses. Sheds get thrown up. My mom actually had a broken window because a limb hit her window. You have these crazy strong storms. If you're in an area that's ever been hit by a tornado, it's the wildest thing. It looks like a bomb has gone off. Even if the tornado didn't hit in a particular neighborhood, paint will be stripped off of houses and they look like they're 100 years old because of the might of the wind. What our passage is telling us today is that Jesus possesses the type of authority where he could say stop to something as powerful as a tornado and it will stop. Not an atom or a particle will move apart from Jesus' permission. Is that how we see Jesus? This passage beckons us to see Jesus in this way. The only appropriate response to the Jesus that we see revealed in Scripture is the response of the disciples at the end of this story. Reverent awe. The fear of the Lord. Grace, we have an opportunity to respond to the Lord of all, the Lord of the wind and the waves with reverent awe this morning, to be amazed by his power, his might, and his authority. And we're only going to see that unpacked for us over the next several weeks as well. So I want to invite you to store this truth that Jesus is the Lord of the wind and the waves deep in your heart so that you too, so that we might experience reverent awe as we look to Jesus, our Savior. In short, I think what we're seeing in this point is that Jesus is able to do something about the, about the world when it rears its head. We can have confidence in the power and might of Jesus to do something about our lives and the world that we're experiencing. And that's good news. It means he's able to help us. But is he willing to help us? That's, that's the other question that that weighs heavily on us, right? And that leads to our second point. where We want to focus on Jesus' interactions with his disciples. So second point from our time in the Word this morning, Jesus is forming his followers. How exactly is Jesus going to help? Jesus is forming his followers. So to see this second point, we need to focus not only on Jesus' rebuke of the wind and the waves, but his rebuke of his disciples. Jesus questions his disciples, and he says, where is your faith? 
Where is your faith? In the other gospels, there is a more stern rebuke to the disciples. It's very clear that Jesus is rebuking them. Here in Luke, though, the the rebuke is a bit more muted. And I think that's significant. Luke is often a little bit more um, more, um, kind and, and he paints the disciples in a little bit better of a light. And I think there's a reason for that. There's a rationale. There's an emphasis that Luke is trying to stress. And so what's going on when Jesus rebukes his disciples by asking where their faith is? I'm convinced that what's happening here is that Jesus is discipling his disciples. We're getting a glimpse of Jesus forming his followers, which I hope would be something that perks our ears up as we seek to be a church that makes disciples, that makes disciples, that they seeks to care about discipleship and, 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 and move intentionally to present one another mature in Christ. Well, Jesus desires that for his followers. He wants them to know him and to love him and to trust him now and in the days to come. And he wants to, to be able to present them mature in him. And so in this passage, Jesus sleeps. Again, no doubt this is due to his physical exhaustion. This is one of those passages where we get Christology on display. We learn about Jesus as a man. He is fully man. And so he feels the same things that we do. He gets tired after he serves. And so he takes one of those great three-hour Sunday naps that sometimes we take. So Jesus sleeps. But at the same time, there seems to be an obvious purpose and intentionality to Jesus' sleep as well. Most likely, Jesus would have slept in the back of that fishing boat, that 20 to 25 foot fishing boat. He would have slept on a bench with some sort of cushion. Uh, And and it's really designed to just be a place to get a quick power nap, to get some rest. Uh, You have to know that Jesus is not in some master bedroom down below. He's not in a king suite on on a a nice memory foam mattress, you know, cozied up under a comforter, uh, nice and warm. That's not the situation that Jesus is in. Instead, he's exposed, open to the elements. And so the storm starts kicking about, it's curious that Jesus would just continue to sleep and slumber. Like he's being tossed around too. He's probably sliding along the bench and bouncing off the walls of the, of the boat. He's probably getting wet as the boat is being swamped with water, right? Like it's not like he's off somewhere protected from those things and unaware of what's going on with the disciples. There's something unique about this sleep. And yet he continued to sleep. He slumbered. And as he did so, he shows us what it means to perfectly entrust oneself to their faithful creator. He he rested in his father's love and his father's protection and his father's provision. And so he slept peacefully. He knew that he was fine. But Jesus could have woken up. The second danger happened. He could have woken up. He could have fixed all this stuff for his disciples. But he tarried. His disciples were in real trouble. And he let them blunder around for a minute in the face of their fear. He let them feel the water come into the boat. He let that water gather at their ankles. He let them feel like they were alone. 
Finally, in their fear and in their trepidation, they cry out to Jesus, who rouses and rebukes the storm, and then he looks to them and says, where is your faith? It all happens so suddenly that you get the idea that the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach is the point all along. He immediately rouses, peace be still, turns to his disciples. He's not admiring his handiwork. He's not looking out and saying, man, I am very strong. No, he looks to his disciples and he's concerned with them. He's concerned about their faith. He's concerned about their souls. Where is your faith? And as he does so, he rebukes them. I think Jesus is rebuking at least two things in his disciples. First, he rebukes their lack of faith in his care for them, in his love for them. And second, he rebukes their lack of faith in God's trustworthiness. In other words, they doubted God could accomplish what he had set out to accomplish. They doubted his plan, his ability to carry out his plan. So first, they doubted Jesus' care for them. They incorrectly assumed that just because they couldn't perceive Jesus to be doing something on their behalf, that he must not have cared for them. He sleeps. He doesn't care about us. If he cared for us, then he would do X, Y, and Z. Jesus sleeps while we perish. They were left feeling alone. In the midst of their fear, they felt like Jesus had abandoned them. Does he care about us? But they weren't alone. They weren't alone. Jesus was right there in the boat with them. Listen to Lig Duncan's excellent insight here on this passage. A storm doesn't wake him up. But the cries of his frightened, needy disciples immediately rouse him to their aid. I don't want you ever to forget that, my friends. A storm is of no consequence to your Savior. He will sleep right through it. But the minute your weak and fretting and faithless voice cries out to him, he is instantly at your aid. You see what that tells you about his readiness to hear and answer your prayers? The storm doesn't bother him. But the cries of his people awaken him to help. Jesus sleeps through the storm, but his disciples cry out to him, and he's right there by them. And he actively helps them. The second thing they doubted was God's trustworthiness. When Jesus asks where their faith is, it's almost like he's asking, seriously? Really? Have you been paying attention to anything that has been happening. You think something could happen to you while I'm in the boat. Think back over the past several months. Do you remember me raising the widow's son from the dead? Do you remember me healing the sick? Do you remember me teaching with authority about the kingdom? Do you remember the things that I have done? After everything you've seen, after everything you've heard, do you think I'm going to go out in a storm? Do you think my heavenly father is going to allow one hair of my head to be hurt before the appropriate time? Do you think I'm going to end up at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee? 
Do you think I'm not going to fulfill everything that I set out to fulfill? No. Of course not. And if you're with me, then you're as safe as you could possibly be. If you're in the boat with me, then nothing can happen to you. You're safe. There is no chance this boat is going down with me on it. How is this discipleship? As one author author I greatly respect says, the miracles of Christ were never just magic tricks. They were always both redemptive and revelatory, which means they weren't just magic tricks. They both redeemed and saved people and they taught people. These miracles are meant to be something that teach, that, that, that unpack something that helped Jesus' disciples understand and reckon with his identity and what that means for their futures. So Jesus is teaching his disciples through this miracle, and as he displays his divine authority over the wind and the waves, and as he tarries to deliver his friends, he's teaching them, he's preparing them, he's working to present them mature. It's as if Jesus looks into the future, and he sees the future storms that his disciples are going to face and he sets out to ensure that they are prepared to endure those unique winds and waves. One day, not very long from this moment, Jesus' physical presence would be ripped away from his disciples. Jesus would die upon the cross only to be resurrected and then to go away and ascend to the right hand of the Father and his disciples would seemingly be left alone And what's going to happen when life gets hard and they feel alone? And so here, Jesus says, you'll never be alone. You'll never be alone, for I will be with you. Even when it doesn't feel like I am with you. Even when it feels like you can't sense my presence. Even when it feels like I'm not actively helping you, I am there and I'm still the Lord of the wind and the waves. Prepare yourselves for what's coming. Prepare yourselves for the greater trials you will experience. I will never abandon you. In not too distant future, Jesus' disciples will experience untold trouble, persecution, suffering, danger, sword, uh, many of them, most of, or all of them except for one will literally be martyred. They will die. And, and you have to imagine that as they're experiencing this sort of persecution, they'll be tempted to think, have God's plans been thwarted? Acts 1.8 is going to say, Jesus is going to tell his disciples they'll be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And they're going to be looking around and they're thinking, we're, we're being killed off. Like are Jesus' plans thwarted by these circumstances that are coming about in our lives? Well, they'd be tempted to despair in that moment. And Jesus comes along in this moment and he teaches them. He looks into the future and he, and he says, even when all seems lost, even when you're literally dying for your faith, remember that I am the Lord of the wind and the waves. So my purposes will always come to pass. If I have purposed it, it will happen. Go, being full of faith, having your faith strengthened, go therefore and make disciples, teaching and and baptizing, 
do so knowing that I'll be with you until the end of the age and I am the one who possesses perfect and divine authority. So go and live out your faith with boldness and strength. Grace, in these verses, we see Jesus' great care for his friends. He refuses to leave them alone and unequipped. It may seem like he's far off or unconcerned or losing grip on his well-crafted plans, but nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, he's demonstrating just how near and capable he actually is. Jesus doesn't want to just stop with his disciples, though. His disciples aren't his only beloved. You are. If you have believed in Jesus, then you are his people. You are those people that his love rests upon. And now our great and awesome Savior, the Lord of the wind and the waves, wants to equip you, wants to equip us so that our faith may be strong, so that we might endure the various trials that are coming our way. We know that in one way or another, the natural evil of this world will rise up against us. It will rise up against us. The proverbial winds and waves will come. COVID will come. Cancer will come. Our loved ones will die. There is a ticking clock that some of us will have to reckon with on the days that we have left in this life. Our children will find themselves in the hospital. And we will be rocked. And that question will come to mind. Who is Jesus? Is he able to do something about this? Is he willing to do something about this? And will we doubt him? Will we doubt his identity, his goodness, his might? Our passage today teaches us that it is possible, it is possible to possess a type of sinful fear that dishonors God. It is possible to see the winds and the waves and not just be scared because they're scary things, but but to in turn not believe in Jesus and not hope in Jesus and not rest in Jesus in such a way that dishonors him. But our passage also reminds us that no matter the might of the storm, Jesus is stronger. And maybe, just maybe, in the midst of the storms that we are facing, Jesus is actually equipping us and preparing us and forming us so that we might continue to endure with faith. He's stoking the faith inside of us so we might live for him and endure. And so we can lean into him. We can hide in him. We can rest in him. We can get into the boat with him where there's safety in the midst of the storm. We can hide ourselves in him as our great and mighty fortress who will help us in time of need just as he helped the disciples both by delivering them and by preparing them for the eventual storms that they would be delivered through. We may not be in a literal boat with Jesus that ensures that we won't die young that our loved ones won't have terrible things happen to them, that we won't experience miscarriage, that we won't have our children experience incredible pain and discomfort, that financial ruin won't come our way. 
but we are in a position of perfect safety for we have Christ in us and with us and for us. And we can be sure that he will do exactly as he intends. And we can trust that that's a good thing. Our God is a good God. A good God who loves us. A wise and merciful God that we can trust. The winds and the waves, they recognize their creator's voice and they will not go one millimeter beyond what he allows them to. And that said, for some of you, I do know that the chaos is particularly frightening today. It's particularly real. It's particularly close. Here today, some of you are watching that fire on the hillside coming down the hill for you. And you don't know how to escape. You don't know if there is escape. That fire will be upon you very quickly. This passage does not promise deliverance in this life. I wish that it did. But it does anticipate ultimate deliverance. Jesus can still the winds and the waves with a single word. He is able. A single thought. He has the power to do something about our estate. But should he choose not to, then his purposes still stand. He hasn't forgotten you. He will not abandon you. And in the midst of your trial, he bids you to cry out to him. Master, master, I need you. And he will respond. It may not be in delivering you from your present trial. But he will help you. And if you cling to him in your weakness, he will grab hold of you in his strength. He loves you and he will see you through this trial and he will bring you ultimate deliverance in this life or the next. And we're here to help you. We want to be a means of strength for you, a means of stoking your faith. That's one of the things that God does through his church. This morning, we're going to close with something that I hope will strengthen your faith, whether you be in the midst of a trial or not this morning. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper. For the first time in a while, we're going to do it by coming to the front with these physical elements um, that aren't prepackaged, and I know some of you have been excited about that. But hear me. This morning, the Lord's Supper, we're considering a truth that we can touch. A physical word that reminds us today of God's love and his care for us as well as the fact that he accomplishes his purposes. Where have we seen the love and care of God most exemplified but at the cross of Christ? And where have we seen God's commitment to his purposes and his plans most clearly but at the cross of Christ? Today, as we approach the table, as we take of the bread And as we drink of the cup, we declare Christ's death and all that comes along with it. We glory in Jesus who came to destroy the works of the devil, including COVID, including cancer, including masses, including heart palpitations, including people dying of of any number of things. 
Jesus has dealt with this and he will deal with this. And we get to celebrate that glorious and awesome Savior this morning. We remember Christ until he returns and he will return for us one glorious day where he will right every wrong and make all the sad things come untrue. And how can this be? Because the Lord of the wind and the waves is the Lord of all.